Good day, good day, and welcome to episode 219 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins. Thanks so much for coming here, spending some time, and boy, do I got a gem for you today. Let's just get right into it today, okay? I'm just going to share it with you. Today's guest is Jay Farrakane, graphic designer and owner of Angry Bovine and self-proclaimed crappy rancher. Yeah, I didn't make that up. That's his. During this episode, we talk about his transition, his trajectory from software rebrand guy to agency creative director and now independent designer, freelance designer, whatever you want to call it, out on his own. He's been doing that for over 10 years now. We talk about the time that he drew a business card. Didn't design it, he drew it. We also get into the project where he accidentally created a vehicle wrap that looked a lot like a Japanese hearse. And if you haven't looked up Japanese hearse, or if you're unfamiliar with that, do a quick little Google search and you'll see what we're talking about. He shares with us that he had table of contents as his wallpaper. Kind of doesn't leave uh, leave much description there, but I'll let him tell that story when we get into it. Gives a shout out to a graphic designer and illustrator that has influenced him and has just been inspirational to him. Gosh, we talk about so much. This is a good one. This is a longie. I'm going to tell you right now. It's a longie. Not a quickie, but a longie. We also talk about why his entire design career has been a struggle. The whole thing. Not just parts. The whole damn thing. He then shares a story with us about the dangers of designing as if it's your business, your brand, or your project. The dangers. And then, right near the end, he shares a story with us about the Duke University Business School project he was a part of, why it's so important to him, and if he's still working with them today. Spoiler alert, he is. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a fantastic interview. I love chatting with Jay. From the moment we connected on this call, I was just eyes wide open, blown away. Because when he answered the call, the camera shows up and he's he set up his office in a 1991 Silver Streak trailer. And it looks awesome. It looks so cool. Um, so definitely, definitely, I know you're going to love this. Should I keep talking? No, no, I know I shouldn't. Okay, so let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my fantastic guest, Jay Farrakane. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field. And we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a quickie? Jay, welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Dave. Oh, I'm happy to have you here. Uh, first and most importantly, are you ready for a quickie? I am I'm always ready for a quickie. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's get to the tough stuff. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Uh, my uh, my name is Jay Farrakane. I run a studio uh, called Angry Bovine. Um, I uh, I like to joke that I am a full time graphic designer and part time crappy rancher. Uh, more on that later. Um, and uh, I'm I'm really a generalist when you come to design. I kind of look at all things um, fall under it, whether it's web, print. You know, um, I'm looking to help clients solve problems. I particularly started my own practice. Um, after working in big agencies and in-house um, at, at, at a couple of big brands, uh, software brands in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, I started my kind of company so that I could speak directly to decision makers and people that were needed things solved with design. Um, and uh, I was able to kind of step back and actually go do the design and, and meet those objectives. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I like to say that... Uh, like I'm a generalist, and I, I really do believe that if you can design a spoon, um, you can design a city. Very cool. Well done. You've been rehearsing that, haven't you? 
<laughs> I don't know. It came out a little chunkier than when I had rehearsed it. So <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. You didn't rush it. It was good. Okay, good. Uh, how I, long? How long uh, have you been running yeah. Angry Bovine for? I started Angry Bovine about uh, coming up on ten years ago. Nice. Big plans yeah. for the ten year anniversary party? Oh man! In this day and age, it's going to have to be distanced. But maybe I'd love to hire, like you know, like in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he hired he uh, Spicoli. After if you've ever read the credits, he he rescues Brooke Shields in a drowning accident, and he spends all of the rescue money on hiring Van Halen to play his birthday. So maybe that's what we do. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love that hiring Van Halen. Awesome. Um, Perfect. Okay, so give me a little bit more detail about your journey to starting Angry Bovine. What's your, you know, sk- skim over the background for me. Give me the, I just graduated from school and here's my journey. Yeah, well, do you want me to start back that far or about bovine? Uh, no, start back further. Give me a little bit about the agency. Get, tell me a little bit about that and and how you came to the decision to cut free and do your own thing. Sure, sure, sure. So, um, you know, I, I, I graduated from design school, gosh, a really long time ago. I'm not even going to bore you with that. I went to San Jose State, fantastic uh, impact, uh, graphic design program, mm-hmm. um, really um, like, like a very rigorous process to get in. Only 30 students ran through the program at the time I was going on a yearly basis. Um, got out of school there, toured through a couple of agencies. I did that usual designer thing. I was at an agency about every three years. I'd get bored, want to see how somebody else did it. Mm-hmm. Um, in my later years, I kind of ended up um, going to the client side, which is something I never imagined I would do. But I think as a designer, it really gave me a fantastic insight um, that uh, at an agency, I had felt like I was sheltered and I was only kind of being given the surface level problems and how would we make this look beautiful? Mm-hmm. Uh, where when I went internally, I realized like, oh God, if the website doesn't work or the sales collateral isn't effective, that guy loses his job. And um, so then I started asking kind of really more business types of questions when it came to um, what could design could help these people, you know, try and do in their daily jobs. Mm-hmm. Um did that at two stints. Uh, at, at, I started one out with, uh, for those of you that are uh, PC owners, when you turn that PC on, there's that blue screen. That is a, a chunk of software called BIOS. Believe it or not, there's a, there's a premium version of that that was owned by a company called Phoenix Technologies, and, and they, they really primed that, that BIOS world. It's a little primal piece of software that makes basically a, a, any PC type of computer run. Uh, and then it kind of seeing, I, I, I kind of rebranded that company, like I said, from the inside out and then moved on to take another creative direction job where I branded another software company from the inside out. And I'm a fairly hard headed competitive human. And um, I wanted to see if my success at Phoenix had had was luck. And so I tried it again. Um, and I, 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 you know, worked through some really hard stuff there, took that company, they got acquired. I went back to agencies. Um, I ran an agency uh, called Solution Set in the Bay Area, um, and uh, we had two offices, one in uh, San Francisco, one in Palo Alto, so I bounced back and forth between there, managing a creative team, built up a creative team of about uh, 20 people. Um, I have two sons who I love seeing every day and, you know, a great wife and family, and um, so I made the choice at a certain point where I was spending a lot of my time... uh, managing people around design so that I wasn't happy in my, really in my design life. And I was in my car a lot driving around the Bay area. Yes. Yeah. That commute, um, is probably 17 weeks or so. Oh, it's, 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 it's so much out of, you know, out of your year and out of your day and out of your life. And, and we made the choice to, uh, move our family to Colorado. I've always been a designer, even as a creative director, I still, my tool to motivate designers was doing design, like trying to encourage them to outdo the old man, as it were. (laughs) And so um, it's my problem solving methodology. Even if I go in and have a discussion with a client, I might come back and wireframe something or sketch out how a a package might look. And so um, I came, we made the choice to move. My, my, the agency I was working for, the economy was doing great. They were like, that sounds awesome. We know there's a lot of creative talent out there. Go start Go start an arm for us out there. I got here. The economy buckles. That was the um, that that kind of trying time in in, in the financial world where yeah. things were kind of imploding. And um, so over the uh, so now living in Colorado, 
I fly back about every month and I basically am laying off team members and that wasn't great for my soul nor for my no design kidding. background. And um, I had fortunately on the client side, I've always believed in this ability, like particularly when working with marketers or maybe people who aren't super familiar with design is to demystify it as much as possible. It's not magic. I often look at myself as more of a carpenter than I do a, um, a an artist for sure um, because I, I have a tool set and I show up every day whether I'm sad, drunk, hungover, whatever it is, <laughs> you still have a job to do. And um, so those people came to me slowly um, as I was kind of still working for this agency. But my clients kept, or former clients kept coming back or, part, you know, colleagues saying, hey, can you help us on this, help us on this. And um, it was really a fortunate kind of way to start a business because as one big thing wound down, I was able to start my current thing, which, which in, in reality was the best way to ever start a business because it was really safe. As many people have said, that's so fantastic. You started your own business. I'm like, yeah, but it, the way it went down, it was like I got to I, I know some people who have started businesses because like you, they got fired or everything went to pot and that mm -hmm. was the only thing they could do. Whereas I got to, I joke that I got to back the boat into the water, drive away from the trailer and, you know, go out and start picking up skiers and pulling them around the lake. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it, you know, as bad as analogy is, is I, I really got to start my business in um, a kind of a roundabout way. And, and as one thing cycled down, the other cycled up. But in that, in that experience, um, I got to really realize that um, what I was looking for in design was, um, I, I think that it, there's, a, there's a thing with designers that they really have to get to this point to be effective designers, they have to figure out how they work best, and mm -hmm. that might not be working for other people. Yes. Uh, meaning like, if you have a boss who's like, you have to be at this desk at this time, and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes there are bosses that are like, tell me how you work best. And those are the great bosses, by the way. Definitely. Uh, but anyway, so long, you know, that very long story was, you know, kind of how I got to starting Bovine. And then I've been so fortunate over the past years that, man, I've, I, I've worked with some people. I have some clients that I've been working off and on with for um, 15 years. I, I rebranded the um, Duke University has a business school. That mm -hmm. business school is called Fuqua. I rebranded that, that uh, school about 10 years ago, right before I moved to Colorado. Um, and then um, my old agency continued to work with them, and and then that relationship kind of just didn't work out for for Fuqua, and those guys came back to me, um, and I still work on them today. Um, and so I, I I really think that when I started my business, I, it was really out to to kind of go build relationships where I could work in the way that is the best for me, because then my clients get the best work for them. So definitely, that's awesome. I love that story, man. That that transition from you know, software rebrand guy to agency creative director and then to freelance. Yeah. To doing yep. a freelance I thing. Like to, I like to use the word independent myself. Independent. I think, um, I think freelance, I don't know, what do you feel about that word? It feels like it always has a little bit of like, oh, dude, that guy might not come to work today. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It just but, sounds free. It is. It, freelance. It, it makes me feel like you're designing a, you know, at the beach or something like that. And you're still creating and come to these solutions. I don't know. It gives me that like digital nomad vibe to me. Well, and, and, and well, we, we've talked, uh, you know, in the lead up to this, you and I got to talk a little bit about my office and then, you know, I, I do have this, I don't know if it's nomadic, but I definitely have chosen to work in a way that should I want to be on the move, I can, because I built my office in a reconfigured trailer, you know? So, yep. um, so anyway, that's but, so cool. Uh, you're gonna have to share some pictures of that thing. Yes, I will. I, I've got quite a few. I will. I will send them your way. Awesome. <laughs> so I want to kick this back a little bit further, Jay, and tell me a little bit about your childhood. Do you feel that you had like a creative childhood that pointed you in this career path? Yeah, I. I think I was a really uh, fortunate kid. So um, this will strike you weird, but I was uh, diagnosed AD, ADHD, super hyperactive. Like I was the kid that they had to put on the special desk in every classroom. Mm -hmm. um, no joke, I actually wore headphones to stay focused, like like literally like headphones that like baggage handlers would wear, yeah. <laughs> um, just to keep distractions to a minimum. Um, and my mom, so my, my family is, a, is, is really interesting, I think. Um, my father is a U.S. Marine, was a U.S. Marine, and then uh, my mom uh, was just kind of a wild hair. 
she was an artist she uh was very expressive um she was a she was just like on fire all the time um and my dad isn't your typical marine either he had this like um kind of beatnik background before the the uh, before getting into the marines and has okay. he's he's very well read he he had a russian literature minor um he had a latin minor and uh, did all this stuff and like he should have been a writer but uh ended up you know flying planes for the united states marine corps um and in that weird pressure cooker of what my family was like my mom would always be at the table sketching and painting she painted for a long time and so i was always afforded just ways to put down stuff and i think at an early age i also knew man, you're not, you're not really great at math, Jay. And, um, paying attention, um, to like, uh, I don't know, routine things was never just my thing. And Mm -hmm. so, um, but I, I would find myself either when I got, I got really into model building as a little kid, like building aircraft and tanks and stuff like that. I, and, but I would find myself in these places where I couldn't concentrate in school, these like areas of hyper-focus and interest, like, Oh my God, I'm going to detail out, you know, the cockpit of this airplane. Or, um, I, I'm fortunate too. My mom's brother was a fantastic artist and he would come visit and he would, every once in a while he would do a drawing, like really cool drawings. And then he would leave them. And I didn't find out later until I started teaching, you know, art and design and stuff like that. Um, that the one way that you're taught in art school to learn to learn art is you just redraw masterworks all the time. And so, my brother, or my, uh, my uncle, my mom's brother, uh, left these drawings with me every time. And they were cool battle scenes and horses and all sorts of stuff. And I would just redraw them and redraw them and redraw them. Nice. So when I went to, to school, was originally for art. And then I figured out, like, what the hell are these guys doing making messes on the floor? And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like and I think the military built this into me because you have to have a purpose. And I said... So what do you guys do when you get out of here? And then they're like, ah, oh, you get grants and you stay in school and you do more school. And there's nobody on earth who hated school more than me. And it's <laughs> ironic, right? Because I teach now. Um, and so I'm like, this is not for me. I'm like, what can I do with art that's a job every day? And then they're like, you should go talk to the illustration department. So I went, started talking to illustration. Um, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Um, this is cool. It's pretty, pretty awesome. But literally, I was taking a beating in, like, not being precise enough to be an illustrator. They're like, by the way, you got to go take this thing called typography. And so the world started to kind of, like, all of a sudden come back into focus at this point. Because Mm -hmm. I go take this typography course, and I'm like, wait a minute. There's a profession for what I've been doing. Because in this whole time, I'm I'm very involved in skateboarding and surfing and... um, and, and that whole world really drove a lot of like my friends and what I did on, you know, if I wasn't at school or at work. Um, and, uh, I, my friends knew I was kind of like the dude that was always doodling. So I would do board graphics and things like that. And you know, I was waiting tables at that time. And I had a buddy who was starting a business. He's like, can you make me a business card? So like, no joke. I drew this business card. I drew a business card at like 18 by 24 inches, <laughs> full scale took it to the photostatter guy, had him shrink it down to a business card. And like, that's how I, that's just what I thought you did. But I didn't know there was a profession around it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, so what, what department is this typography class in? I could barely say the word. And they're like, this is graphic design. And I'm like, there's a profession for this. No way. Tell me more. And so, um, anyway, that's where it started. And even in that school situation, I was learning very compulsory things. And I do joke, now in my older days, I realized how much I learned in this guy, design school. But when I left design school, I was convinced that the only thing I had learned at that time was how to not cut my finger off. With an <laughs> and, then, and then I realized all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I understand how to use grids. And I understand hierarchy. And, oh, you know what? All those people that I butted heads with because I wasn't I, – I had a standing argument with one of my design professors that design – and art, artistic talent was innate, and he believed he could tell any, teach anyone to be a designer. And so I yeah. literally, I would have like arguments with him. And so now today, as trying to be somewhat of a mature man, uh, I see what his point was, is that he was like, he could teach anybody the basics of design. Now, expression and artistry and magic, all that stuff, that's a little bit harder to defend on his side, but mm-hmm. I kind of get it, and I was probably being a jerk, so... 
uh, (laughs) You've since come around. I definitely have. Number one, because I'm an educator and I've met kids that were like me, um, I I think I'm just being punished. But I do. I think I had a very creative uh, childhood and I was left to my devices a lot. Like literally my dad would my dad would go, you know, away on float for a year and my mom worked a day job. So, you know, so I had a very creative childhood and a lot of permission to uh, just explore. And I think that's something I'm very excited. And we weren't always in the United States. I lived in Hawaii for a long time. I lived in Japan. So I got to culturally see lots of other stuff, too. You know, that's cool. And I bet that plays into your worldview, your design thinking, your, your process, because you've experienced those different cultures. Yeah. And, you know, one, one short side story is, 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 is funny because I do have these, you know, I, I like living in Japan was fascinating because mm-hmm. I really got in, you know, in, interested in Japanese art. And then you find out about all their like cool subcultures. And I'm, I'm a big fan of music and skateboarding. And so I would literally go into towns, wherever we were, major city, little teeny village, and figure out where was there a music store, who's, who here skateboarded, and you could meet the coolest kids, but they had cultures, like within their own culture, right? And art was a big part of it. So at the first technology company I mentioned that I was a creative director at, we had offices in Asia. And so they asked me, again, back to this thing, if you can design a spoon, you can design a city. They're yeah. like, hey, we want you to wrap a car. And I'm like, I got that. I, 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 didn't, I really didn't see it as anything different than designing a website or a package or whatever. And so I do this. We had a color, you know, we had a, we had a colorway on, for this brand. And I kind of did this car and, and sent a mock-up over to the, our client and, our, well, our constituents who were in Taiwan. And um, I get this very, like, cautious email that I'm trying to read because uh, I knew – um, the marketing person in Taiwan's voice. And I'm like, oh my God, if she had to read this to me, it would be like an apology. But she said, hey, we we are excited to get designs. But, and then there was like a <laughs> bunch of spaces. And it said, the, the the vehicle design which you've presented to us in our culture is, how, is a funerary vehicle. <laughs> and so, meaning, so this was a car that was going to pick people up from the airport and then take you to this trade show. It looked in, in, in the Taiwan, the way it was wrapped is it, it's customary what they do to funeral procession. Vehicles. Oh, my. And uh, and so if that's not like, you know, anyone familiar with that part of that culture, they would just kind of laugh. Go, oh, you're picking me up in a hearse. Like, am I am I dead? Or am I going <laughs> to death? Um, so anyway, yeah. So culture does like once I realize it, um, it's, it's actually a really a fascinating thing, you know, to think about design that might work here is what does it mean, you know, when you employ it, somebody else. And that's always something I'm kind of trying to like nude on, particularly because of experiences like that. Totally. And I'm so glad you shared that story. That's so funny. <laughs> so Jay, is there, is there a specific design that stands out to you as the most influential design of your life so far? Something that you saw and has just stuck with you since? Um, you know, when I, when, when I think about that question, the first thing I, I kind of do is it's like, oh, I should come up with some cool story about like, I really love like Russia, Finnish, Finnish art, you know, postmodern, um, you know, Japanese art or something like that. And I, I think a lot of my um, design movement life, the things that have affected me the most, and um, I find myself doing it today because, you know, the music I grew up listening to and, and, and growing up in the military, one of the coolest things is kids come and go. And so cultures just flow in and out of it, like your Mm -hmm. town. So when I was living in Hawaii, which is, I think, my most formative time, all these kids moved from Washington, D.C. And this is 19, this is mid 80s. All these kids moved there from um, Washington, D.C. They all show up with D.C. punk rock and they all skate. And so um, I think the biggest impact on my life really was skateboarding, the biggest design movement, Mm -hmm. um, because everything from that point on I digested was literally like looking at album liner notes and cover art of of bands from that that kind of that particular genre. But man, skateboarding through and through. And at that time, it was funny because um, when I was about in my early teens, I remember, you know, I was at a point in skateboarding where I could actually like do it. (laughs) <laughs> um, I was getting better because when you first start, it, it's not unlike design. You no, it's, it's not pretty horrible at it. 
you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember getting, I, I, I would get Transworld skateboarding every, every time it would come to a, our, you know, our little base store. And I'd go get it, and, I'd, and for some reason, I still don't know what graphic design is. I just know that I love skateboarding, and man, this magazine, and all this stuff I'm seeing, board art, all this stuff just, it does something to me. And when I would get Transworld Skateboarding, I'd read through it, and it would be so beat up. But at some point, I would cut the table of contents out, and I'd put it on my wall. And I had this whole wall in my room that was literally four years of table of contents from it. Uh-huh. So at that time, I don't have a way to go Google who does, who, who makes, because I don't know the word design, who makes the table of contents for Transworld. I find out later it's David Carson. And so <laughs> fascinating enough, I actually get to talk to him about that at some point. And so um, I, I went, I'm in design school. I go to a book signing of his. I'm shooting the breeze with it. I literally get up there all nervous. And he goes, um, he goes, Hey, how are you doing? What's your name? And he starts signing my book. I go, Hey, when I was a kid, I cut all the table of contents out of every trans world magazine I could get my hands on. And he slides my book aside. He reaches between his legs and he pulls out a beer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, there's a, there's a line of kids behind me. And so we end up talking about like, he's like, that was my favorite part of designing that magazine. And he talked about like the ins and outs of it. And, he wrote this really nice note in my book afterwards that said, trust your gut. And it, it's so funny because it factors into today and how I, I really feel about the work I do and the way I work with my clients. Mm-hmm. But the, the real takeaway was, is I got asked to be on a panel a couple years ago and they asked a very similar question. What was the most, that actually they said, what was the most single influential piece of design? And I talked about this table of content story. But before I went to do the talk, I remember I had to think about like, why, why does it mean so much to you? And I had never seen something it, and my 13-year-old brain would not have been able to process this, but as you know, trying to become an adult even now, um, I think the thing that was so striking about those things is that they were completely free. Back to your, mm-hmm. you know, your, uh, um, your, uh, my, my wanting to be called an independent. You're like, but you're free. You're on the road. <laughs> um, um, the uh, there was this high degree of expression in them, but at the end of the day, if you could understand the system, it was information and it was communication and it was totally usable because uh-huh. the page numbers were in there. But sometimes it'd be sideways. Sometimes it'd be stretched across the page. And anyway, I realized like, oh, that's kind of how I want to do design even today. Um, and so anyway, um, so I think the most influential part of my design life has been skateboarding as a whole because it's it, it is a culture unto itself that it revolves around expression whether it's the movement of skateboarding um, and as an old guy and I promised myself I wouldn't sound try and sound curmudgeonly on this but like I look at some skaters today and they all skate a lot of them skate very similarly because of competitions and stuff mm-hmm. but man in the old days like it was so cool to look at somebody because like their style was there like oh that guy does frontside ollies like this or this guy does frontside rock and rolls like this and you, you just kind of like there was a lot of expression and then it stretched out into like, Oh, what kind of clothes do you wear? What shoes do you wear? What music do you listen to? And you had all these like micro sub genres within the big one. Cause you had like hip hop skate kids. And then you had like metalhead skate kids, Totally, um, you know, and to me as a, as a culture, it's just still fascinating to this day. I love that. I love the way you said that and broken down the culture. Like it's not just skate culture. There's rock skate culture. There's punk skate culture. There's like yep. hip hop skate culture. Man, I never thought of it that way. I like that. Well, and, and to kind of close that note out, so when I first moved, so I was living, I lived in Japan until I was 18. And then at some point I'm like, man, I got I to gotta start going to school and just doing something. Uh-huh. So I land in California, uh, Northern California. And this is, again, like mm, late 80s, early 90s. And there's a scene in San Francisco that is just going off. And as a kid who grew up on listening to like, you know, primarily punk rock, but a lot of metal and stuff like that too i go start skating in san francisco and and you've got all these inner city kids that all listen to hip-hop and i'm like wait a minute this is even screwing up my brain um but it did one of those things that again it it was that was another super cool thing of like hey you'll you will never have this whole thing figured out because it's constantly evolving and changing Um, and to me like those kids skated super awesome and um, but it was like, it was just fascinating. Like, no way hip hop kids. <laughs> like, yeah, so, uh, anyway, sweet <laughs> Jay, who are some of the designers and brands that you look up to and closely follow? And what about them do you like? 
Gosh, you know, I, you know, I think Instagram just makes us such a, it's just such an easy, it's almost, I, I would say it almost cheapens like how good designers are out there. I think mm-hmm. one guy that I really look up to, and maybe it's my start in, um, in illustration, but John Contino, I just think does absolutely fantastic work. Um, I, I love my bros here in Colorado. You know, I think the burger fair guys do terrific work mm-hmm. always. I think, um, you know, Todd and Lucian, it's again, coming back to, I, I live in a really like high talent, uh, design community. And yeah. that's why I'm fascinated. I'm on your show and very flattered, but like Johnny and, um, and crew from cast iron, they do amazing work. And I can look at each one of these crews as like, they, they have their own unique speciality. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you know, the burger fair guys have just this, this very modernist, super pure aesthetic, you know, Johnny and them, that they, they, they're so talented and they can do things from packaging, but it always has just like a really rich vibe. But underneath of it, there's a lot of consideration of like, what's the impact that thing is going to have on the world um, to uh, there's fantastic packaging shops here. Our ad culture is going off. So I'm kind of looking at all of it. But if it was one guy's name, I would bet John Contino as far as a designer brands, man, that's a that's a hard one. I you know, it's funny because um one of the brands that I really try and like, I honestly stop and follow is 100%. They make goggles and gloves and it's a motocross brand. Yeah. And um, and then a publication that literally I carve out. Uh, and, and I think so much of the way I perceive brand too is what's the magazine that is the, the, the president of representing that culture. And there's a magazine I read published here in Denver um, by a, a, a it's called Meta. And I don't know if you've checked it out. You can check it out online. Um, ridemeta.com um, some of the best art direction um, those guys actually design all the ads that go into it it's a very limited ad buy and it, there's an aesthetic to the whole thing that is just super fantastic but you know I, I think a designer's job if I was to tell you I only have one brand or you know a dude that a dude or woman that I'm looking at as far as like wow they're doing really great work I'd probably be doing myself a little bit of a disservice because like, I do think I had a designer that worked for me once that was like, I'm like, how did you, where'd you find this thing? And he goes, he goes, dude, we're supposed to be a cultural aggregator. And then he just walked away. And I was like, <laughs> that is the coolest word ever. And his name is uh, Beto Espedia. And um, one of the best designers I've ever worked with, he still does design in the Bay Area. Um, but he, he came up with this term a cultural aggregator. And I thought that was the coolest thing. And I've now I kind of look at it as my job is, is not unlike my skate trips into the Bay area and to San Francisco in the nineties. I'm like, I have to be open to like, okay, that's what's cool right now. That's a vernacular. That's a thing I need to learn about. So mm-hmm. I can maybe use that, um, in something that I'm going to do because, you know, as designers, we have to, we have to figure out number one, what audience are we communicating to? And then Number two, what are the things that they respond to? How are they used to being communicated to? And and then you, I don't know. That this probably comes back to something in my punk rock skateboard world that subversiveness is 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 a big part of of those cultures, right? Like sneaking one in under the man a little bit, and mm-hmm. um, maybe that's even my attempt at that because I've done things in enterprise software where I'm like, this is a very consumer practice, but maybe to get somebody to pay attention to it. Maybe this is a, a, a an interesting way to do that, mm-hmm. um, and even also like done like blatantly done things like covers for. Are you familiar with what a white paper is? Like it's a usually a very boring, super long form, um, thought leadership paper yes. on something. Yeah. Okay. So I I had a long stint in my career where I designed lots and lots and lots of those, um, and they all. The, my only saving grace was I got to design a cover them more often than not mm-hmm. and so this one brand i did work for that their whole shtick was um they wanted the, each cover to be like basically an album cover and so kind of arty and a little bit looser but somewhat inferring you know what was going on in for sure one of one of the software companies i was working on had done this thing on like imagine if you could clone your workforce so my head instantly went to cloning sheep and then there's a very famous minor threat it's a punk rock band out of dc um, album cover called Out of Step, and it's a watercolor drawing of sheep, and then there's one kind of crayon drawing, black sheep jumping out of the herd. And so in my own weird, subversive way, that kind of became the cover for a software company where <laughs> the dudes who were looking at it never knew, but I'm like, okay, cool, I got one in under the wire on that one. <laughs> nice. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I love that. Some great names that you mentioned there that, um, you know, bring, bring an incredible talent to the field and um, the cultural aggregator. I like that line. I'm going to use that for one of the quotes. Well, and I think it's, um, I think it's very truthful. Like, you know, as, as uh, designers, like think about how many resource resources we have out there now mm. where we're just constantly able to take stuff in. And, you know, our job is to get really good at like parking those things. And uh, one of the things I kind of harp on my designers about is, um, is I try and teach them way before you ever have air quotes, your own style, which as a designer, if you can get away with that, that's super amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm much more of like what I call a catalyst designer. I look at what they need and, and then hopefully bring something that works to that. Mm-hmm. But that's where the, the cultural aggregator and being able to speak in various language, I always call it um, vernaculars, like, hey, do this in a Western comic book kind of style. Okay, cool. <laughs> nice. I know what that means, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think being able to put it in those kind of containers even helps me sell ideas sometimes. Um, but uh, yeah, that cultural aggregator thing, when, when that guy Beto said that to me, I'm just like, oh my God, you should be the boss here. I'm going to go home. <laughs> exactly. I'm done. Wrap it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Jay, the next couple of questions I have for you take you down part of your career where you've likely made some mistakes, learned mm. some lessons, and I want to pull those stories out and share that with the listeners. Cool. Um, so what has been the most challenging period of time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Gosh. Well, I, I would say, I, 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 at first I thought I'm going to, let's, let's make this kind of funny. My entire design career has been a struggle in, <laughs> and, and, and as much as I want to make people be lighthearted about that, I, I do think that, that in some way there is a truth in there, particularly starting out. Like when you, when you go through that phase of proving yourself and I was really fortunate that I was, I just, when I got out of design school, I designed through the first dot-com boom, actually the first two mm-hmm. dot-com boom bust in, in the Bay Area. And I watched designers get fired around me and stuff like that. But the interesting thing, not, not to make light of someone else's circumstance, but I was always ready for opportunity. And all of my jobs came that way. And, and it was always up to me to live up to it. And that, if that meant, not sleeping for a really long time, teaching myself things that I didn't know yet they think I knew um, to get by and make sure that this was going to happen. Um, design didn't come innate for me in, in a weird way. It was, it, even though I was super excited about it, it, uh, it was like skateboarding. It was like I wasn't good at it when I first started. And um, it, But then I would say getting started was probably my most hardest time because I was really trying to prove myself and it and it, it was just a struggle it was really a struggle I think as I moved on and I think that all designers deal with this whether mm-hmm. it's anxiety stress um, choice how much time do I have to do this thing how will I get it all done those are all things that we are if, if you're if, if you are saying if you're a practicing designer and those things do not affect you you've just figured out a way to bury them down deep, Um, (laughs) bury them deeper than others. Yes, exactly. Well, and, and, and I think my currently today, I struggle with all those things on some degree or another. There are days where I come into the studio and I'm like ripping through projects or things, you know, the magic is happening. And then there's other days where literally the world's against you and you don't have enough time and your computer's running slow and it's on hovercraft. And, you know, it's just, it's just doing, you know, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I always have to, to do, and again, I, I think that starting my own practice, it's one of the things that it's afforded me. I, I work primarily alone in my studio, um, that it's afforded me to, to think a lot more about the why. And I mm-hmm. think that is design in, in a nutshell. If I was only one, one word to explain, you know, what's the ultimate purpose of design? It's why it's fixed. It's really to solve for that. And so when I look at the things that are creating struggle, um, the things that I kind of really like I'm challenged by anxiety, stress, all those things that kind of come into it, I realize now that that's just part of the the process and you have to acknowledge it. That's really all you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all I can do at least is acknowledge it and go, man, you feel weird right now because you're concepting and this is how it's going to go and you're good and you're going to get to something that will work. Um, and you know, you just got to give it the time. And I think 
that's that's the other thing that is really fascinating about becoming you know a little bit more of a an older designer is is that um, I don't worry as much these days if something if I will make something because mm-hmm. I used to really stress about that in the in the early days. Yeah. I think I always arrive at something. Is it perfect? That's a different discussion. Um, I will always get to something. And again, coming back to that kind of carpenter idea, a carpenter can show up and he's like, well, I made that handrail OSHA secure, but if he's motivated and inspired and things are clicking, he could like, you know, shape that out of one, you know, shape a handrail out of one gigantic piece of oak. And he made your staircase spiral instead Mm -hmm. of, you know, a ladder to get to the second floor. Mm -hmm. Um, they both work, they both move us. And I come back to a lot of times design, I think at the end of the day is a utility. It is there to serve a purpose. Sometimes that purpose is adornment. Sometimes it's very action oriented or directional, meaning like directions, like, hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, But you have to look at all those things on a case by case basis. And then it also has to be governed by the audience it's serving, um, how much time you had to do it. And I'm often asked that question. I I was in a, a meeting with a CEO when I was running the agency in the Bay Area, we told him, you know, one of our account people said, um, okay, so the design first round of the design phase takes this much time. And we were going over budget in that conversation. And he goes, wait a minute, you mean to tell me this website's going to cost me whatever he said, I don't know, 80 K something like this. Mm-hmm. And he goes, and it's going to take six months. And I don't think that was the amount of time he goes, you mean to tell me if I put $120,000 on this table, you couldn't have this done by tomorrow? And I found myself sitting in that chair going, shit, I guess I could. I mean, <laughs> would it be the right thing or would it be good? And that that's that's where I kind of came back to is, is like, you know, it, it, it was just a condition that got mm-hmm. introduced into it. And that always, to me, is the thing that you're managing in design. What's the conditions? How much work do I have on my plate? Which client am I going to prioritize? Um, how much am I getting paid here? Um, do I, you you know, there's so many factors to come into it that, you know, as I start to think about all the other pressures, anxiety, choice, holy crap, is it going to be any good, man, you better park those away because there's a lot of other stuff. Um, and that's why I say I acknowledge, you know, it now, but literally it, it got in my way a lot, I think. And, and I do see every once in a while, young designers, students that I'm teaching, um, sometimes that anxiousness to want to create the super perfect thing Mm -hmm. or, it, it, it often they can get in in front of themselves and then they go, well, I only had five minutes and here's what I did. And I'm like, that's, there's some kernels of awesome in here. So let's yeah. go suss these out because I bet what you did is you got out of your own way in your moment of panic and, you know, you just submitted. And so in some way, I think uh, that's, that's kind of how I, I deal with a lot of stuff every once in a while too. So. And when you tell me that boardroom story, you know, when a customer says, you mean to tell me if I put X amount of dollars on this table, you can't have this done tomorrow or in a couple of days. And it's the conditions, right? I had this, this, uh, in print, I had a customer, um, this was a long time ago where they started with this tiny little job and within three months became like the print shop's biggest customer. Like hmm. by far they turned, they went from this little customer to a massive, massive business in a very, very short period of time. And in this growth curve, of course, they've got their own demands that they need to hit. They've got to get product out to customers. And, you know, we're, we're production based. Like here's our current schedule. We're three weeks out. We're four weeks out. And he, he asked me, so are you telling me that being your biggest customer, hmm you're not going to be able to turn this out tomorrow for me. And I kind of sat back and I thought about that for a second. And at first I didn't know what to say. Um, but yeah, in reality, like you're our biggest customer. Like really it's a matter, it's a schedule. It's not like there's physical limitations to this happening. Right. It's, it's a schedule. And, and to me, what you're talking about, like technically is a design problem. You're managing conditions yep. at that point. Right. You know, so what was your answer? Um, I phoned him later on in the day and I said, yeah, it does have sway. So we'll have your job tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But in, 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 and you know, too, in that, in that respect, I think that everyone forgets and, you know, like that design is a business yep. too, right? And the production is a business. And so... As much as people, again, that's why I, 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 I'm not trying to sell myself as like a blue collar dude, but like, like 
the construction metaphor like really applies because it 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 is um it is a job and it, it a lot of us would do this for our friends and family if we weren't being paid i i, I know i make t-shirts and stuff and stickers for friends and stuff like that all the time. And mm -hmm. I helped my wife brand her nonprofit, which is how I became a crappy rancher and two, because we have a bunch <laughs> of horses at my place. Um, and, 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 and I think at the end of the day though, when you get into a circumstance like that, like I have retained clients that those clients call. And as much as I think I'm a free bird, you know, if they're like, Hey, we need, we, we're going to cash in all your time for this review tomorrow. And guess who's working late? Mm -hmm. This guy, good yep. problem. But, um, it, and, you know, for all, anyway, that's, it, it is a fascinating thing to, to, you know, you're managing conditions. So that, that, that's another job of design. Definitely. Okay. Jay, for this next one, I want to get a little bit more specific. I want you to tell me about a specific design or project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. What was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Hmm. Yeah. So be so I always like to come back to the notion that design ultimately design should be objective, mm -hmm. right? That's what we're always taught. Beware that 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 kind of uh, I don't know shielding um, that that the word objective can bring because I think at the end of the day we're all we all want to be proud of the work we're making and we want to stand by the brands that we've helped. And so anyway. Um, I also think that a lot of times the word objective gets thrown around as a way to shield our own egos when we're doing work because you go, well, that's what the job needed. And, you know, it wasn't my aesthetic. You know, this is where we got to. So I had uh, recently was brought on. This was a few years ago, two, three years ago. I got brought on to a job, met, met with the client first first meeting. Um, really awesome set of people. And they are great today. I don't want this conversation to make them feel like it that it went, that was, they're bad people. And, and I, and the design I did was great. And they went out and turned it bad because the design is still really good. The mm. way I walked away from it was what was the bummer part. Cause as somebody who built a business that wants to run on relationships, I don't do advertising. All my work comes word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, the, I, I, I think that the, the kiss of death that happened at some point in, in that project was the business owner who had hired me said, treat this as you would your own brand. So therefore I probably screwed it up, meaning I didn't do enough check-ins with him when I started doing things. And I was trying to save them money and because they made a physical product that was gonna be carried in like Home Depots and that kind of thing. And it was a really cool product. Now mm -hmm. there's a weird, there's a fascinating thing that'll bring this, you talk about design problems and then political decisions affecting et cetera, et cetera. Um, it gets really interesting. So anyway, this client is making this prototype product. So we help them do the packaging. Um, it's clamshell. You know, it's designed to be stuck on one of those shelves. Like when you're buying drill bits, you'd buy this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's this kind of it's this piece of technology that's um, it's cast in plastic. It's got a pretty cool look. Um, fits in your bathroom. And anyway, we helped them. Uh, they had named it. We did the identity, all the look and feel. Um, and then we started building out their website and a lot of their web. Uh, the web was really going to be their um, kind of like main focal point because distributors were going to come in there and place orders and then customers could find out about how to use the thing and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I took a lot of the responsibility on this. It was far beyond the the, the fairly minuscule budget that we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, but it was kind of work for a guy that I really respected that who who had created the introduction. And so we dive in to the work. And so when he said own it like you would your own. The, I think the, the thing that I instantly became, I was not objective anymore. I was treating it like it was my own. And mm -hmm. as a designer, that's a pretty dangerous place to be because I was making decisions without asking a lot of other people. So um, I know we've got to build this website. I want to shoot the product. I know that the product is going to go through a number of evolutions coming up here. So I build the corner of a bathroom on wheels, in my garage and I take it to my friend's photo studio in the back of my truck and we start shooting stuff and I'm literally like, Hey, we're going to be in here shooting every month and, and all of their photography will be super consistent. Like people should see photo this photo on Google and they'll be like, that's that product. Cause like there's that tile in the background and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, systems working perfectly. 
But every once in a while, I get this signal of like, hey, have you thought about this? And what had happened when he said, treat this like your own brand, I had stopped asking questions. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, we launched the product. Um, we launched the website. I'm sorry. The product is still being developed. We're kind of creating this like lead thing. Now, as a designer, it's fascinating to me to think about the client base that I have and who gets affected by what. And, you know, we live in a time where right now, most if you have clients, they've probably been affected by something. Mm -hmm. Disease, riot, whatever right now. And it's they, so fast. Uh, let's rewind. Gosh, this is two years ago. Tariffs come into action. Yep. This client is making a product that is cast and that product gets cast in a big chunk of steel that comes from Asia. Mm -hmm. So that product went from the molds, right? Those molds have to be made in Asia and shipped to the United States so they can cast this little product. Um, that product went from being like a fairly profitable thing to make to, hey, guess what? We're not even going to make it anymore because wow. the mold costs so much. So anyway, at the end of the day, I walked away from that feeling like I had created this really great brand. Um, I knew it would work. I knew it would resonate with, people in Home Depot and who we had had kind of targeted within Home Depot and that kind of stuff and Lowe's or whatever hardware store you like to shop at. But at the end of the day, I put the blame on myself because I didn't do the job of continuing to ask questions and look for feedback. It got really focal and I just treated it like I was running my own business and that wasn't the smart thing to do because then, you know, I wasn't writing the budget. So when I was having my photographer friends show up and you know shooting this kind of thing so it, it it just left me with like man i mismanaged that and so it was an unhappy feeling because of all the energy i put into it and really wanting it to be great that it didn't and then at the end of the day nature <laughs> kind of helped us out and it never really hit but it was it was a lot of of energy invested and i think that's where some of my disappointment came so the feeling would be just disappointed when i walked away because i'm like man we only have so much time on earth and we as designers work on lots and lots of stuff if we're fortunate. But I invested a lot of personal energy in that. And I think that's where I got a little bit, you know, I just walked away from the whole deal going, man, I'm disappointed. But the, the takeaway for me now is number one, if anyone ever says that at the beginning of the meeting, I usually tell this story, Hey, why don't this to own this? Like you, like it, I want you to own this, like it's your brand. And I, and then I go, okay, let's, let's caveat that. Let's get a little clarity <laughs> yeah, exactly. around this. Cause I'm pretty frank. Like, I mean, like talking to you is, is super easy, but I talk to clients the same way, you know, I'm like, yeah. Hey, let's, let's have a conversation around this. Cause this is why that makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. and, and when you say own it, like your own brand, like, what does that mean to you? Because I need you, like I said, I'm a catalyst. I, I look at myself as a very catalytic kind of designer. People have to give me inputs and it may spark new things or create new reactions, but particularly with my software stuff, man, like I can't invent that. Like, you know, and mm -hmm. so anyway, it, 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 that would be a, a pretty good one in my recent history. Now, if we want to go back in time, I, I, I screwed up one print job so bad that I actually paid for it myself to teach myself a lesson at a really small studio because the client, our, our agency wasn't going to make any money anyway, mm -hmm. that I spent the... I don't know at that time, probably close to 500 bucks on like a run of like some cards or something like that. And, and it literally, it was my file that screwed him up. And I, I was like, dude, I know myself well enough. I'm like, Jay, <laughs> you're not going to learn unless you get some, you know, a pound of flesh taken. Yeah, so, unless you feel the pain. Yeah. And I, I, I paid for that print order too. So, oh man, well, at least it wasn't a $20,000 order or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. It was, it was within my freshly out of school design budget, so. <laughs> but that. still painful enough to know like, ah, oh, dude, there's a couple boards, you know, and you know, some beers on the weekend. So yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, Jay, I'm going to turn this bus around. Um, I want you now to tell me about a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of one that just makes your heart sing. Uh, you know, in some way I'm, I'm very proud of, Honestly, I'm, I, and, and I don't want this to come off as like lame or weird, but I'm honestly proud of everything I think I get to work on. There are a few, obviously, that stand out simply because of the time and engagement or maybe some of the initial challenges in it. Um, you know, I look at some of the stuff that's out there right now that I've done. Um, I look at, um, I, I'm fortunate to get to partner with some really great um, creative professionals. Um, like I said, 
we have a really great talent set here in town. Mm-hmm. Um, I did some work for Cannondale Bicycles about two years ago that nice. I believe really turned their um, the perception of that brand around, and and they've built a whole new creative group and really have moved on. But I think we set some of that into play and and proved to them that hey, you guys are making fantastic stuff, and you know what, this is a really cool space. Stop being the nerds in it. Um, and then, um, but if 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 there was one. Um, that that stands out above all. I would say it's Fuqua. I, th- I think it's Duke University. Um, number one, it's 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 a fantastic institution above all. Mm-hmm. But I think what they've really tried to do as a business school, and 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 I worked on the brand, so the the written part of that school and its promise kind of to the world, mm-hmm. long before I did the visual design, the branding, and so the the real idea that we came to is is and again being a catalytic designer i just got to have really great conversations with people in at the school who were really in in charge and had a great vision for what the school was doing and i got to help articulate that mm-hmm. but the fascinating thing to me almost 13 years later the brand still holds true it still looks as far as i'm concerned like looking at it among other business schools in particular it's one of the most engaging it's the most approachable it's clear, it's big, it's not, you know, it's not crappy. <laughs> it's, I mean, education brand, I, I, I'm very proud of every time I work on it. And literally, actually today, you know, I'm, I'm still working on brochures for them. Um, and uh, I, I get to do a lot of long form stuff for them that's paginated. And that to me is beautiful because one of the things I, I, I do a lot of web design, I do a lot of logo design, but I think paginated design because you get to pace and and take lots and lots of content and really think through how do i make all this stuff yes. digestible to me is a fascinating design problem and more um, opportunities to sort of build that puzzle yes exactly and and i think constantly building on the system that i've put into place from visual design you know whether it's the fonts that we're using or color palettes and how does it constantly evolve and one of the cool traits about that brand is i don't think it's ever the same twice but it's consistent. And mm-hmm. I think that's a misnomer that happens in design a lot is I've met brand managers and creative directors that are like, it has to be like this all the time. Like, like an ad always has to be in the same format and the headline has to be in the same type. And there's always this bar that has our logo in it. And I'm like, that's, that's one way to create a consistent brand. But you know what? Use that font big in an ad and use that color blast big in an ad or, or in a website or something like that or in a, bro- a booklet. I, I think people get hemmed up, hemmed up on this this word consistency, and I want to build brands that are kind of living and breathing, and they they can be depended on for their consistency. Meaning, like, oh, I'm familiar with that, but I don't don't ever want them to be repetitive. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things that makes me really proud, particularly about um, Fuqua and the, and the work we've done there. I love it. That's a great one. Um... So Jay, I'm going to wrap up here with the ask it forward question. This is where I have a question for you from my last guest and you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. You can ask them anything, but I'm not going to tell you who they are. Okay, cool. So my last guest was Jamie Collins. He's a partner and creative director at Design Analog out of Vancouver, BC here. And he wanted to ask you, and I really like this question, what does it mean to live a good life? Mm. Uh, gosh, I think having the time to do what you really want, I think that's living a good life. And that because I purposely don't want to say money in that. And if I look at anything where I do get back to my anxious states in work or family or life, it's honestly because there's a pressure around it. There's a deadline, there's a time. And I work to deadlines all the time. But I think having enough time so I would think living your best life is having enough time to do what you want. And that because I love doing work. I love doing design work. And I'm especially happy when I have enough time where I get the real time to process it and think it. Now, coming back to the business aspect of things, right? Like, hey, I got to manage that because I've only bid three hours to do this thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But, um, but really, I think that that time is the most valuable thing that we have on this planet. And I watch so many people waste so much time, myself included. Um, I'll, I, I find like I get really frustrated if I start really cranking on something and I stall out and I'm like, okay, dude, you're really wasting some time here. And um, probably drives my kids a little bit crazy because like every once in a while I, you know, I kind of get on them for 
what are you doing with all your time right now, buddy? <laughs> you know? Uh, totally. So I would say time. Yeah, for sure. Have the time to do what you want to do. I like that. Well said. Jay, what is the question you would like me to ask the next guest for you? Well, um, I would say, because people ask me, I, this question has been asked of me and I actually really like it. Um, um, if, uh, if you weren't doing design today or creative, what, not knowing what this person does, um, if you weren't doing design or creative today, what would you be doing? If you weren't doing design today, what would you be doing? Yep. I like that. What would you be because doing, Jay? I would be a, I would be a I would be a carpenter. I think I'd be some sort of builder of things because uh, we didn't touch on this very much, but I hinted that my wife runs a nonprofit. I live on a ranch outside of Boulder, Colorado, um, and um, the reason I believe I'm a part-time crappy rancher is because if I'm not in my studio doing design work, I am generally building some sort of animal containment device, normally known as fence. Uh, <laughs> And so uh, if, if it's not a new fence being built, it's fixing one because we, we have Mustangs here and yeah. uh, they like to, well, they get feisty with one another and they'll kick things down or gnaw on boards. So um, I, I really do think that if I did not do design, I would have to be building something and it would probably be stuff like fence and mm -hmm. general woodworking contractor kind of guy. Nice. Yeah, I would. Uh, I'd be a chef. No way. Oh yeah. Interesting. What type? Of, uh, any single food? Are we talking pizza, Mexican food? What? Are, where where are we? All at? of the above. I would be like. I'd be like a. My favorite right now, right now, and for the longest time has been Jamie Oliver. Yes. Yeah. So I love him, and and my favorite, and what really got me in, into him and his style was he had this series called Jamie at Home. And it was yep. just him working in his garden and he's like cooking outside and just like, he just approached it. He took cooking and, and like fine cuisine and just said, whatever, I'm going to freaking cook it in my backyard. Like it just, it, it comes out beautiful and delicious, but there's no measuring spoons. There's no, it's just like a little of this, a little of that, a little chop this up roughly and put it in there. And like, it just, it's, it's my kind of stuff. Well, you will you will get this restaurant this reference because um, my guilty pleasure is cooking shows. Love mm -hmm. them. If you're like, hey, uh, you can go see Metallica live, or you know what, you can you can stream all of Top Chef at one sitting. I'm probably going to go Top Chef, and then hopefully I can find a Metallica concert on YouTube later. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, the Jamie Oliver show, the ones you're talking about in particular, I. Uh, that the man is like art directed and yeah. the way that they set things up, they convince you that you can do the amazing things he's doing. And I love the fact, you know, this is what I was going to say. You get don't muck about like that's one of his phrases. Yeah. And I, I honestly think that's something that, that I try and do in design, at least to get to arrive at base starts of design, because yeah. instead of going in there with tweezers, he doesn't work with tweezers. He's not one of those guys. And I love the fact that he might be, it's raining outside. So they stuck him in the corner of like, a little porch with a hot plate yeah and he makes some crazy dish or he's in the mediterranean and then he puts some hot rocks there in a pan and beats the crap out of the fish and i love everything about that show and i would bet if i wasn't a carpenter i probably too would cook because i cook most of the meals in our house mm -hmm. see originally i was going to say an actor or entertainer of some kind but <laughs> i sort of i sort of bridged that a little bit right now because I mean, I have a podcast, I've got a platform, like I can say what I'm going to say, like it's a little bit of entertainer. So I was like, well, I can't, that's not far enough from what I'm currently sort of doing. So I need something further away. And chef is like hundred percent. I love cooking. I'm the chef in the house. And I don't, I don't enjoy cooking when it's like, what do I have to make the family for dinner tonight? Like just the regular stuff. But when I have the time to just come up with something, shop for it and make it, I absolutely love it. That's awesome. So what is for dinner tonight? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to shop for it. But it comes back to time, right? Like, yeah. like I think Jamie's question was perfect. And I, I love that. I, I, I'm going to think about that all day now. Awesome. Um, well, Jay, you've made it. You've reached the end of the quickie-ish podcast. I really appreciate <laughs> your time of being my guest today. I really appreciate it. And, and um, if people don't, thank you enough for what you're doing for the design community. I will do it now because, uh, you've taken on a, a Herculean task and, and it is, um, it is something that 
you know, I, I've tried to build a community here in my own neck of the woods, but I love it that you're doing it on such a big scale and so regularly. So uh, uh, kudos to you. Thank you for doing what you do. Oh, thank you so much, Jake. There's uh, people doing it better than I am, I'm sure. Well, I doubt it. They're not, at least not on this call right now. <laughs> That's true. They aren't. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Just uh, hang on the line. All right. That is the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I told you guys it was a longie. It's a good one. I loved this. Love chatting with Jay. Great personality. So many stories to share. Great, great interview and conversation. Thanks so much for hanging out, being a fly on the wall and just listening to us chat. Hope you got some amazing value out of this. And if you are digging what you're hearing on the Quickie Podcast, let me know by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or Spotify, wherever you're listening. I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Let's talk to you soon.